And we come here to Spirit Rock, and you sit down and find ourselves right from the beginning faced with so many different kinds of difficulties. You know, there's sleepiness and there's boredom and there's restlessness. There's expectation, there's discomfort, there's the judging mind, the self-judging mind, comparing. So all these forces arise in the mind. These are not new to these times. You know, they are the nature or they're part of mind conditioning. And the Buddha spoke about them very clearly, very explicitly. He called them in the classical teachings, the five hindrances. And these five states are mind states that are particularly seductive, meaning that we get caught in them again and again. Buddha said that when we attend to these five hindrances carelessly, they cause lack of vision, lack of knowledge, are detrimental to wisdom, tending to vexation, leading away from awareness. It was a very strong, explicit statement about the power of these mind states causing lack of vision, lack of knowledge, detrimental to wisdom, tending to vexation, I like that one, <laughs> and leading away from awareness. But the bad news, you know, of our growing self-knowledge, which is the awareness of these hindrances, in one way is also good news. Because when we attend to them carefully, they actually become the vehicle for greater understanding, the vehicle for our transformation, the vehicle for our waking up. So I'd like to talk about these five tonight, and hopefully we'll get through them all. In the traditional order, it starts with desire. But I found from experience that when I start with desire, I never get past it. <laughs> because that's my thing. <laughs> so I'm going to do it in reverse order, and maybe we'll get to desire, maybe not. So the first of the hindrances in reverse order is one that has come up already in some of the groups and questions, and it's a very uh, powerful mind state when unnoticed. And that is the hindrance of doubt. When we use the word doubt in English, it really can refer to two different qualities, one that's helpful, one that's not so helpful. The helpful kind of doubt is that of inquiry. It's really investigation. What is this? What's going on? What's happening in my experience? In Zen practice, this is called the great doubt. You know, we really hold this question about the nature of our lives, the nature of our minds. This kind of doubt is opposed to blind belief. But the doubt that's not so helpful and not so skillful, we might call skeptical doubt. And skeptical doubt is the mind state of uncertainty. It's the mind state of indecision. It's like coming to a crossroads and just not knowing which way to go. Going back and forth in our minds, trying to decide. When this doubt is present, we go back and forth between alternatives and don't go any place. And that's why doubt is such an obstacle in our practice. It really can bring our minds to a standstill. When doubt is strong, it doesn't even allow us to take a wrong turn and learn from our mistakes. We're not even willing to do that. We just stay in this place of indecision. Now, always wondering, checking ourselves, recently reading a new book that, uh, that came out, a novel called The Life of Pi. 
maybe you've seen it. Um, it's by Jan Martel. And I was just reading through the novel, and there was one line in it about doubt, which just jumped out of me. I knew I wanted to use it for this talk, because it so aptly describes this hindrance. He wrote, to choose doubt as a philosophy of life is akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. <laughs> That's what doubt does. So we need to understand it. In meditation practice, doubt takes some very particular forms, and I'm sure they'll be familiar to you in various ways. There can be doubt about the practice itself. What is sitting here watching my breath? What does this have to do with anything? You know, where we really have this, this is useless. In, out, in, out, in, out, in, out. What's the point? Or we might start comparing practices. You know, after a day or two of in, out, Tibetan chanting or Sufi dancing looks a lot more appealing. <laughs> so there's that kind of doubt. Doubt about the teachers. You know, many of you have studied with different teachers. This is characteristic, a lot of you know, Buddhism in the West. Studied with different teachers, getting different perspectives. And so doubts can arise who's right. You know, if someone's right, then the other person must be wrong. So the mind gets lost in that. Perhaps the most difficult manifestation of this hindrance is self-doubt. Doubting our own ability to practice. Am I doing this right? That constant self-judgment, or I can't do this. It's too hard. This isn't the right time. All of these are manifestations of this hindrance. When self-doubt is strong as a pattern in us, it becomes a very debilitating habit in our lives. Because we're always undermining ourselves. And we're always holding back. We're always checking ourselves. I can't do it. It's too hard. It's not the right time. So we want to see this pattern. There's an interesting phrase in English. You know, we say someone is plagued by doubt. Well, that's very telling. That's a telling phrase. Because it really is as if doubt is a plague, a plague of the mind. It's a plague that weakens us. Now, instead of making the experiment whether in meditation practice or in our lives, about something we want to do, choose to do, instead of making the experiment and just engaging ourselves fully and doing and surrendering to it, and then assessing for ourselves its value, when doubt is strong, when self-doubt is strong, it just keeps us back. We never try anything. And then, of course, the self-doubt becomes self-fulfilling. Because doubt really is useless. And so if we're just lost in this, in this tape loop, then we actually don't accomplish anything. This endless conjecture in the mind, the doubting mind, is exhausting. And for those of you who may have been plagued by it at different times, you know it's exhausting. The Buddha called it, he likened it to a thorny mind which keeps jabbing us. And every time there's this doubting tape, it's just like a, another jab. And it leaves us feeling very irritable and discouraged and disappointed. 
But the great seduction of doubt, the reason it's so powerful, is that it often comes masquerading as wisdom. We hear these voices in the mind, these wise-sounding voices. And they sound so reasonable. And we get caught up in these endless thought loops. So what to do? How to work with it? Because we need to work with it. Otherwise, it really can stop us in the practice. It stops us in our lives. We need to recognize the various voices of doubt as they arise. So we need to get clear. We need to be alert to the arising of these voices. As soon as they arise, as soon as we become aware of them, I can't do this, doubt and tape. It's too hard, doubt and tape. Who are these teachers anyway, doubt and tape? So we're right on the case. If we catch the tape quickly, if we're not carried away, if we can see it arising and not seduced by its convincing tone, we have a very deep insight into doubt in now we realize that it is just another passing thought. That's all it is. It's a thought arising in the mind. If we see it for what it is, it has no power. If we don't see it for what it is, it has enormous power. You know, and you probably know for yourselves, perhaps, if you have gotten lost in any doubting thoughts, doubting tapes, and then in the moment when you come back to the breath, come back to a sensation, come back to the movement and walking, in that moment of coming back, and we're just with the breath, just with a sensation, a movement, is there any problem? Is there any confusion? Is there any doubt in direct experience? Doubtful. <laughs> and so then we really begin to see that it is just a thought. Doubt. We need to be mindful of it, we need to see it, we need not to be seduced or fooled by it. And again, I'm talking now about the skeptical doubt, not about the great doubt, not about that energy of inquiry. So the second of the seductive energies, the one that can really capture us, is that of restlessness, agitation, worry. You know, it's that particular pattern. What is restlessness and agitation? On an energetic level, what's happening is that there's too much energy in the system and not enough concentration or steadiness of mind to hold it. And sometimes I think of a, and this is probably some kind of mixed metaphor, but you know, I think of a kind of a container with a lot of energy in it, and if the energy is too big for the container, it's kind of spilling over. Well, the container is like the concentration. You know, it's that steadiness if the concentration, if the container is not big enough and the energy gets worked up, it spills over and we get agitated. It takes many different forms. Sometimes this restlessness or agitation is an amazing feeling in the body. You know, it's that feeling where you just are going to be jumping out of your skin. You cannot sit still. I had this at different times in my practice. I remember once in, in Burma at the monastery, for a period of weeks, every evening at 8 o'clock, this wave of restless energy. It was like clockwork. You know, it just, I could not sit there. And so I would just get up and kind of be almost running around the perimeter of the monastery. I mean, the monks must have thought I was nuts. Here's this tall Westerner 
doing this crazy, I was not lifting, moving, placing, you know. <laughs> but I just had to move, I had to do something with that energy, it was so powerful. Another time I was teaching in Hawaii, this was uh, quite a while ago, just maybe in the 70s. And I remember once in the middle of giving a Dharma talk, this restless energy came. It took everything I had to keep sitting there and to keep, I just wanted to jump up and run out of there. It's powerful. It can be a very powerful energy, this restlessness of the body. Sometimes our body is still, but it's our mind which is agitated. You know, the body's okay, it's just sitting peacefully. But there's a whirlwind of restless activity in our minds. You know, can't settle down, just this whirlwind of thoughts and fantasies and imagination. Mind jumping from one thing to another. Have you noticed that all the mind getting hooked by obsessive patterns of worry or regret, you know, where we just can't get off of the loop? There's also a phenomenon, I think it's fairly unique to retreats, which we call yogi mind. Yogi mind is that aspect of agitation or restlessness when thoughts loom completely out of proportion either to their importance or to their connection to reality. But they seem so real, and there are many, many stories of yogi mind. But just one I'll share with you. This was when I was doing my own retreat back at IMS. Again, it was quite a few years ago. I was sitting in my room, which was quite a distance away from the kitchen. I was down a long hallway and down a set of steps, and kind of in the other side of the, the other end of the building. And I'm sitting in my room, meditating, and I start hearing these voices coming through the pipes, the radiator pipes. And I'm sitting there hearing whole conversations. And in my mind, these were people talking in the kitchen, and somehow their voices were carrying through the pipes. You know, this is quite a distance. I was totally convinced that this is what was happening. And the conversations I was hearing was quite a Rorschach for my mind. <laughs> one friend was pregnant, another couple, one of them had killed the other one. <laughs> you know, and so all this big stuff is going on, and I'm convinced people are not telling me because they want to protect my retreat. Yeah. I was totally lost. This is yogi mind. You know, and I had, to, I had to actually go down and, and check it out. You know, I went to the, what's going on here? Why aren't you telling me? So if you find yourself obsessing about having the wrong kind of toothpaste, yogi mind, yogi mind, yogi mind. <laughs> Now, there's a subtle kind of restlessness, and this, I want to talk about this, and this is mostly for the experienced yogis, because I think for people just beginning, probably won't have this experience yet, but for those of you who are experienced, who have been practicing a long time, there's a time in practice, you know, when there's a strong momentum in mindfulness. When it's really going smoothly, it doesn't take much effort. You're just sitting, and there's the energy flow, and there's the flow of mindfulness, of attention, and it's going pretty well, pretty easily. In that state, thoughts are not very disturbing. You know, they come and they go, and they just seem to be part of the flow. Well, if we look carefully at those times, it becomes quite interesting to see that in that quite effortless state, 
where thoughts don't seem to be, you know, they're not carrying us away particularly, they're just coming and in the flow for a while and then disappearing, to understand that even being lost in thought for those short periods of time in that very smooth flowing state is itself a kind of restlessness. It's the mind losing the steadiness of focus, but it's all very subtle, and we just kind of ease into it and ease out of it, and we think it's not even worth noticing particularly. And the example I use, and don't take this literally, but it's just it's an image which came to mind as I was watching this in my own mind. It felt to me in that place like the thoughts, and this is just an example or an image, that the thoughts were happening at the speed of sound, and that awareness itself is happening at the speed of light. And so I just started to notice that even indulging those thoughts, even in a way that seemed very simple and easy and not problematic, it actually was having a solidifying effect, different than when the mind was just resting in awareness, not pulled into the thought. So anyway, I don't want to belabor the point, but if you can connect it all with this, for those of you you who are at that place in practice, pay attention. See how thoughts at that level could be a very subtle kind of restlessness of mind. And so then we just bring a little more energy of wakefulness. So what to do with restless energy? We want to see it, we want to recognize it, we want to name it. Sometimes restlessness happens because we're too lax. You know, we're just letting the mind go, and so then it starts to wander a lot, and it gets restless and agitated. When it's too lax, we need to rein it in. And a phrase, a useful phrase for you to keep in mind in your practice, as a reminder, is close attention. What we're practicing is close attention. Because there's a meditative disease which I call more or less mindful. You know, we're kind of mindful, we're kind of there. So we're not totally lost, but we're not really feeling it closely. when there's this more or less mindfulness, that leads very easily into a restless state. So when we're too lax, drop into the body, feeling it precisely and accurately. The other cause of restlessness is when we're too tight. You know, we're trying too hard, we're forcing things. So that agitates the mind. When we're too, not, too tight, we need to open up. We need to become spacious, feel the whole body, open to sounds, rest in the knowing mind. So the mind becomes very open, very spacious. We relax the tightness. You need to monitor in your practice. Too lax, a little more care. Too tight, relax a bit. Now, restlessness is like this great whirlwind of energy, a whirlwind through space. It's not a problem if we become the space. If the mind becomes the space, then the whirlwind passes through, and it's not a problem. So there's doubt, there's restlessness and agitation. The third of the hindrances, which again has been mentioned quite a few times already, is sloth and torpor. It's the Buddhist jargon for sleepiness, for dullness. And it's a great phrase because 
one point, one of the few times I was reading a book on natural history, and I was reading about the three-toed sloth. It's a very interesting animal. You know, it hangs by its feet, and it's so slothful that if you fire a gun by its head, it won't even turn its head. <laughs> you know, it's just... And every once in a while, at kind of long intervals, it'll kind of rouse a little energy, come down for a little food, maybe mate, and then back up to the tree. And <laughs> so I don't know which came first, the mind state or the, the name of the animal, but it's a very good characterization. This state, this mind state of sloth and torpor, is very common in the first days of retreat. I mean, many, many people experience it. You know, and it can be maybe at certain times of the day. It's mostly in our lives, especially our lives here in the West, we are moving on the energy of stimulation. There's so much coming at us and in us, and so much we imbibe to stimulate ourselves. So we come here, and there's not much stimulation. So what's the first response? And this is the energy we've been, we've been acting on. Without it, there's just this feeling of a kind of collapse, energetic collapse. But it's a very valuable process. As we let go of our reliance on external stimulation for our energy, we begin to connect with the inner source of energy, which is this whole mind-body system. This whole mind-body is an energy system. As the mind collects itself and drops in and connects, we're connecting with a source of energy that's much more powerful and sustaining than the energy of the stimulation. And what you'll find, and I think it's quite common, you know, as the days of the retreat go on, even though in the beginning you might be very sleepy, slowly the mind feels more wakeful. You, know, you get alert earlier in the day. You find you can stay up later at night. You might need less sleep. Maybe not in a nine-day retreat, but certainly in longer ones, it's not uncommon for people to find they get by fine. You know, on five hours sleep, four hours sleep, three hours sleep even. So this is the process, you know, as we drop in. But there's a more profound and deeper meaning sloth and torpor, which also points to a deeper danger. Not just the bouts of periodic sleepiness that we might feel, that's the superficial meaning. The deeper manifestation of sloth and torpor, both in our meditation and in our lives, is the pattern of withdrawing from difficulties. That's really what sloth and torpor means. It's the habit of not arousing effort and energy <laughs> in the face of challenges. You know, and we've all experienced it this different, at different times. Or we might find we have the energy to meet external challenges, but then we collapse into sloth and torpor, that sense of withdrawal from the inner difficulties. Just as doubt can come masquerading as wisdom, sloth and torpor has its own mask. Sloth and torpor often comes masquerading as compassion. You know, we might feel tired or bored or restless, and then this very compassionate voice arises in the mind. Let me take care of myself. 
let me be good to myself. <laughs> Maybe a little nap will be just the thing. And it's not to say that there are there are times when we do need to rest. So that's we need to acknowledge that. But very often that's not the case. And it's just the power of sloth and torpor coming in the mind. We don't want to deal with the boredom. We don't want to deal with the restlessness. And we don't want to deal with the discomfort. It's that sense of withdrawing from the difficulty. It's very important to see this because not only does it hinder our meditation, I mean, you can see what it can do in our lives if this is the pattern, if this is the habit. Difficulty arises, withdraw. So we want to learn how to work with this factor so we don't buy into it, so we see it clearly. Just as an example, in the early years of my practice in India, I was studying with a teacher named Goenkaji. Um, it was a very great teacher and powerful, powerful presence. Well, in his schedule, uh, everybody got up at four in the morning and sat for two hours before breakfast. Not my usual schedule, you know, but this was, you know, the retreat, so I was getting up and sitting, but my habit was to get up quickly, go to the meditation hall and find a place against the wall. <laughs> yeah. So I would sit and I would start out sitting upright and then, you know, after 20 minutes or 25 minutes, I'd find myself leaning against the wall and then soon after that I'd be asleep. And this happened the second day and the third day, and it happened for the first week, but these were long, some long retreats, you know, second week. And I started thinking, and this is a sloth and torpor type thought in the guise of compassion. Oh, this is ridiculous. I'm just getting up sleeping. I might as well stay in bed. I might as well sleep. And then at least when I get up, I'll be awake. So that was the thought in my mind. But I didn't, I didn't know whether, maybe it was peer pressure, you know, but I just kept going. I just kept getting up and going. What was amazing, sleeping, 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 day after day after day, one morning I went in there, sat down, was totally awake the whole time. And from that time on, it was like that. And it was just such a good lesson and even when we think nothing much is happening, even when we think, you know, the hindrances are still overpowering us, the very effort to meet the challenge, the effort to face the difficulty, something is growing within us. Some power is strengthening. So we need to understand that this is the process of getting stronger, even when it's not immediately apparent to us. So what to do? How to work <coughs> with this energy, this feeling of sloth and torpor, whether it's the sleepiness that we feel, or just this withdrawing, the unwillingness to be with difficulties. Again, we need to see it, we need to note it, we need to recognize it, so we're clear about its arising. We can bring a quality of investigation. If you're sitting and you're feeling sleepy, you're feeling dull, ask the question, what is this experience that I'm calling sleepiness? Instead of just dismissing it with, oh, I'm so sleepy, we really bring that inquiry to our experience. What is it? What's the constellation of experience that I'm calling sleepiness? And as we look, we see certain sensations in the body. We see a certain feeling in the mind. We begin to unpack it. Sometimes we need to bring a strong energy, a strong intent. 
On one retreat with Upandita, I was sitting, and just these waves of sleepiness would come over me. So I was sitting, and I could feel them coming. It was almost like it started up here, you know, and just come down. So I decided, you know the cartoons where somebody's eyes is propped open with toothpicks? <laughs> well, that, I was just sitting like that. I was completely exaggerated posture, forcing my eyes open. And then this wave of sleepiness started coming down. And I could just feel sleepy, sleepy. And everything in me wanted to close my eyes. You know, it was just so seductive. But I didn't. I just, like that. And what was amazing, I could watch the energy wave of the sleepiness come down, pass through, pass down through my head into my body and out. And then 30 seconds later, there was another wave with the same seduction. But I just, like that. There were three, four, five waves of this. It was gone. And it was so interesting to see again that sleepiness is a mind state. It's a certain energy configuration that comes and goes. It's impermanent. But if we take, oh, I'm so sleepy, I need to rest. You know, I didn't get enough sleep last night. Then we're just falling into it. We're feeding it. We actually can play a little bit and understand it as an energy. You can play with the walking, the speed in walking. You know, if you're feeling really sleepy, walk more quickly. And counterintuitively, sometimes walk more slowly. You know, on this same retreat with Upandita, Sharon and I at one point were walking next to one another in the dining room at IMS. Now, in that retreat, Sharon was the queen of slowness. I mean, it, it probably would have taken an hour and a half to get from here to the door you know, of the meditation hall. So we were walking next to one another, and she was walking really slowly. And I was just so sleepy. I was really sleepy. So I started walking quick, you know, quickly to rouse some energy. It wasn't working. And I was as sleepy as ever. Then I glanced over, and I saw her just creeping along. So I thought, well, let me try that. And then I got a little competitive. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to walk slower than she's walking. <laughs> which was very hard to do. <laughs> but I just... Okay, how slowly can I walk and still move? That, <laughs> that, that, was my, that was my challenge to myself. Well, it was amazing. Within two steps, I was wide awake. Because the intentness of my mindfulness, the intentness you know, of my inquiry and... and the attention I was bringing, it completely woke me up. So it's all a question of play and investigation. You know, you're sleepy, you walk fast, it's not working. Walk really slowly, see what that's like. The main aspect with regard to sloth and torpor is to reframe our understanding so that we see difficulties as challenges rather than as problems. You know, so when there are difficulties arising in the practice, instead of withdrawing from the difficulty, engage with them. You can engage in them in a whole variety of ways. The word for effort in Pali is virya, and this is often the force used as the antidote to sloth and torpor, aroused effort and energy. Well, another meaning of virya, which I found very helpful, another meaning of that word is courage. And I found that an extremely helpful reminder in practice, 
because often it's not a question of efforting. Often it's a question of courage, of strength of heart to be present. But that's the quality that it takes. Okay, so there's doubt, there's restlessness and agitation, there's sloth and torpor. The fourth of the hindrances, and one that often wreaks havoc in the world, is the mind state of aversion. And aversion takes many forms. Anger, hatred, annoyance, irritation, ill will, boredom, judging mind, all of these are the force of aversion, fear. You know, it's the response, the conditioned response to unpleasant situations, unpleasant things. If something we don't like, the conditioned response is in one way or another to get rid of it. And its manifestation is often in one of these forms. Very easy to see, of course, in our relationship to physical pain. How many of you, when you're sitting, you know, when pain starts coming up, how many of you have the attitude, oh good, this is a chance for me to really understand pain. It's probably not your first response. You know, when we look carefully, there's discomfort, there's pain, usually the first response is, I don't like this, I want to get rid of it. There's a contraction or a pushing away or some kind of aversion. Aversion arises about painful past experiences. Now, how often can we be sitting and a thought or an image comes to mind of a difficult, painful situation in the past, and it comes to mind and it just triggers, you know, anger, triggers ill will, triggers fear. We think of someone or something, we get angry. But in that moment, and this is very interesting to say, really what we're getting angry at is a thought. It's just a thought that has arisen. The person is not there and the situation we're not in. It's a thought that's arising of a past situation. But if we're not mindful that it's just a thought, it can trigger very powerful emotions. even more strange, stranger, is the fact that we get angry, we can get angry, or annoyed, or irritated, or fearful, about anticipated future events. They haven't even happened. But we're sitting and imagining something that might happen. I remember, I was, I was, again, retreats are great, you know, you just learn so much about the mind. I was on one retreat, and there was a meeting that was coming up at IMS, and I, I had this thought that it was going to be a really difficult meeting about some problem that was going on. And I was just anticipating a lot of conflict. And I remember sitting there, and these thoughts would come, and as soon as I would have the thought of the anticipated meeting, I'd start getting irritated. The meeting hadn't happened. This was just my mind playing out a scenario. And Mark Twain captured this very well when he said, some of the worst things in my life never happened. <laughs> and in fact, in the event, the meeting didn't go at all like I anticipated. It was totally fine. So we want to watch this tendency of the mind, you know, this projection of ill will onto an imaginary future. Sometimes we get impatient or frustrated ill will around difficulties in our practice, you know, or different situations on retreat. And then we project that 
dissatisfaction on our fellow yogis. There's a, there's a retreat phenomena called the Vipassana Vendetta, <laughs> where this one person or more here who you just can't stand. You don't like the way they walk, you don't like the way they dress, you don't like the way they eat, you don't like anything about them. And you don't even know them. You might not have said anything to them. But it doesn't stop our mind from projecting this ill will, and it's usually a projection of our own ill will we're, we're feeling towards our own difficulties. We want to watch this, we want to, we want to see this. So how to work with the different forms of ill will, of anger, of annoyance, of irritation, of fear. As with all the others, we want to recognize them quickly, we want to note them. Without judging, and this is particularly challenging with anger or ill will, we don't judge the anger and we don't judge ourselves for having it. It's just another arising mind state. Can we have that mirror-like wisdom of the mind? We're just seeing it. And the noting is really helpful here. Anger, anger, ill will, annoyance. And watching the tone of voice of the note. Keeping the tone of the note very accepting, very open. Thich Nhat Hanh, who has certainly been in difficult situations in his life, you know, the, the, the Vietnamese peace activist and Zen master and writer and poet, uh, you know, lived through the Vietnam War in very intense circumstances. He said, the Buddhist attitude is to take care of anger. We don't suppress it, we don't run away from it, we just breathe and hold our anger in our arms with utmost tenderness. The anger is no longer alone, it is with our mindfulness. If you keep breathing, mindfulness particles will infiltrate the anger. If you keep shining your compassion and understanding on it, your anger will soon crack and you will be able to look into its depths and see its roots. So we don't fight with it, we don't struggle with it. We hold it in mindfulness and observe, and look, and investigate. Sometimes aversion, or anger, or ill will is fed by unacknowledged emotions. That there, there might be emotions underneath the anger, which keeps fueling it. It could be emotions you might feel hurt or we might feel afraid, or we might feel self-righteous about something. And if we're not acknowledging those underground springs, then we stay locked in the anger. So if you feel caught, just take a look. Is there something underneath? Is there some emotion, some feeling that I'm not acknowledging? A couple of years ago, I was teaching a retreat for law students, lawyers. This is part of the contemplative law program. Uh, it was challenging <laughs> in its own way. And in one of the discussions we were having, one of, I think it was a second year law student, he made such an interesting comment. Because we were talking about anger, and he was saying, in an adversarial situation, you know, as, as often the law is, uh, he said, I need, I need my anger. If I didn't hold on to my anger, I would feel the fear. You know, and it was so revealing to me kind of the use of anger in that situation, and, and we all have our own comparable situations, using it to protect us from feeling what was underneath, from feeling the fear. 
Well, then we got into a discussion of how perhaps it might be much more productive and useful in that situation to be accepting of the fear rather than pushing the fear away and rebounding into anger. There are a lot of reasons, a lot of conditions for it to arise. The challenge with this hindrance of aversion in all the forms, irritation, boredom, fear, anger, ill will, hatred, can we be mindful of them as they arise without getting lost, without venting, without drowning in them? Because holding on to anger or aversion or ill will is like holding on to a hot burning coal. Who's suffering? The anger will arise, I mean, it will until we're quite enlightened. The question is, how are we relating to it? Are we becoming mindful? Are we opening to it and letting go? Or are we holding on? Are we justifying it to ourselves? There's one teaching of the Buddha which I call to mind as a reference point when my mind gets caught, you know, in a situation where anger is arising or ill will is arising. And this is a very powerful teaching. You know, it's one that I come back to again and again in my life. The Buddha is addressing. Uh, the monks and nuns, and he says, there are five courses of speech that others may use when they address you. Okay? Their speech may be timely or untimely, true or untrue, gentle or harsh, connected with good or with harm, spoken with a mind of loving-kindness or with a mind of inner hate. Herein, because you should train yourself thus, our minds will remain unaffected. We shall utter no unskillful words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving-kindness. And starting with that person, pervade all the world with a mind imbued with loving-kindness abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, without ill will. That's a challenge. You know, if somebody is speaking to us untimely, untrue, harshly, connected with harm and filled with hate, our minds will remain unaffected. We shall utter no unskillful words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare. In those situations, when I reflect on that, it's a very powerful reminder of what I value. It's not always that we can do it. It's very difficult to have that kind of presence of mind and that abundance of metta. But at least if we're holding that as a possibility, as a value, then it helps unhook us from the kind of self-righteousness that we can get into. Well, I should be angry, and they're wrong, and they're a jerk. And it's a very powerful reference point. There's a whole story which we don't have time for now behind the Buddha uttering those words. Uh, maybe, maybe some other time. Okay, five minutes for desire. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's doubt, there's restlessness, there's sloth and torpor, there's aversion, desire. Desire is the wanting mind. It's a tremendously powerful energy in our lives. 
You know, we experience it on so many levels. We can experience it as obsessive passions. We experience that as addictive cravings. And we all have our various addictions. We experience desire just in our recurrent fantasies. You know, sitting here fantasizing about whatever. Or just even passing whims. Oh, a cup of tea would be nice. You know, something that just arises in a moment. And even though on retreat, the field of desire narrows considerably. You know, there's not that much available. But still, it does not diminish the force of desire. You know, and the force of that wanting mind. At one time in India, this was kind of in the early years, but I had been there, I'd been there a few years already. My practice was going really well. You know, it's like my body was open and my mind was clear and just light and the kind of sittings when you think you're going to get enlightened any minute. You know, I mean, that, that kind of clarity and luminosity and power. And so it was wonderful sittings. So we were staying at this kind of Burmese monastery in Bodh Gaya. These were in the early days, not many people there. The food was not spirit rock food. <laughs> Pretty basic. And in the evening for tea, all they served was a cup of tea and two tiny bananas, about that big. I mean, I've never seen such small bananas. <laughs> so I, this one evening, I'm sitting there, you know, fantastic sitting. I'm about to get enlightened. The tea bell rings, and the overwhelming thought in my mind, I need my banana. <laughs> and sure enough, that thought, that desire just lifted me off my seat, you know, down to where they were serving the tea. You know, in one bite it was gone. But just the power of that wanting, of the desire even for something so ridiculous. You know, how often in our practice are we sitting and we're just getting lost in fantasies? Maybe they're lustful fantasies, or food fantasies, whatever. And just indulging the pleasure of it, the wanting mind. Desire in the form of expectation. You know, powerful force in meditation where we want something else to be happening. You know, we're with the breath in order to experience some state. Watch the in order to mind. It's just a form of this hindrance. Watch the expectation. On an energetic level, notice times of rushing. Just that very familiar feeling of rushing someplace. What is that? It's our mind is ahead of ourselves. It's like we're not back in our bodies. We're wanting. We're being pulled out by wanting something, even if it's just to get someplace. Very interestingly, and this, this becomes a powerful exploration, in times of suffering, really look carefully because very often, most of the time, it can be traced back to some kind of wanting, wanting something. And if we can trace that back to the wanting and feel the contraction, the energetic contraction, which, which often is felt right in the heart, you know, that energy of wanting, then it becomes possible to practice relaxing that not holding on, not identifying with that wanting. There's a very profound relationship between wanting and suffering. And so we can explore that. One of the greatest insights into the nature of desire of wanting is the 
very direct insight that it is impermanent. Because normally we think desires need to be fulfilled to come to resolution, to come to completion. And if they are unfulfilled, we remain frustrated. One of the great insights in meditation, as we see desire, as we work with it, desire, 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 and at a certain point, it's gone. We haven't done anything except be there with it and observe it. Didn't fulfill it, didn't act on it, didn't suppress it, because in its nature, like everything else, it comes and it's there for a while and it goes. And it's very interesting to observe that moment of transition from wanting, from desiring something, to when the desire falls away. Because I think you will notice, if you can catch that moment, that there's a sense of a, there's a huge sense of relief. It's like being let out of the grip of something. When we're caught in desire, it really is like we're in the grip of this energy, and then when it goes, the mind comes to a place of peace, a place of ease. We can see that. This is not theoretical. It's just something to observe. So with all of these hindrances of restlessness, of doubt, of restlessness, of sloth and torpor, of aversion, of desire, that these states are not intrinsic to the mind itself. They're visitors. The nature of the mind is awareness. The nature of the mind is pure. These states come out of conditions. But they've come so often and so frequently, and we often don't observe them carefully, it feels like they live here. But they don't. They're just visitors in our mind, and if we can bring mindfulness to them, bring awareness to them, we really transform their energy into wisdom and understanding. I'd just like to close with a teaching from Ajahn Mun, who was this fantastic, he's kind of the father of the Thai forest tradition, and lots of fantastic stories about his, his realization and his understanding and his powers, and he's really like this I don't know what he was like. <laughs> anyway, powerful, very powerful. He's, he's considered to be fully enlightened. He said, of all the many things that people value and care for in the world, the mind is the most precious. In fact, the mind is the foremost treasure in the whole world, so be sure to look after it well. To realize the mind's true nature is to realize the Dharma. Understanding the mind is the same as understanding the Dharma. Arriving at the truth about one's mind is the attainment of Nirvana. Clearly the mind is a priceless possession that should never be overlooked. This is really what our retreat is about. It's honoring this foremost treasure in the world, which is our own mind. Let's sit for a couple of minutes.
all the many things that people value and care for in the world, the mind is the most precious. The mind is the foremost treasure in the whole world, so be sure to look after it well. <laughs>